Thank you, Jesus. Get your Bibles out. Get your sword out. Maybe we'll kill a giant tonight. Hallelujah. I've been here on many occasions, but not as often on a Sunday. And uh, one of those times was your Super Sunday. So we only had the afternoon. So I'm enjoying being with you on Sunday night. What I would really enjoy is sit over there on that pew next to my daughter and listen to Dr. Shield preach a while and and Pastor Shield preach a while and sing some more songs and just enjoy Jesus. Amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. I love the Bible and I love the Shield family. I hope they won't mind if I get a little uh, personal here tonight. I, I like to be with them. It's so fun to just be with all of them and just observe the currents of the family as they... I love it. I love to hear Dustin tell jokes. Let me tell you something. Dustin likes his jokes whether you like them or not. That's the way it ought to be. I just love to hear George say anything. I really like to hear Brother George. It's wonderful. It is. The amazing family. Dr. Shield has been a true leader in the apostolic ranks. He's made all of us proud with his journey of, of leading the way and he's proven that you can, you can be intellectual and still believe that Bible. Yes. That, that lack of education and faith in the Bible, that, that's not necessarily the way it has to link up, that you can be very smart and still believe that Bible. And I appreciate his journey, appreciate his good wife. I like for her to just say anything. She just don't talk very much. So when she starts talking, I just listen. Hallelujah. She's a wonderful lady. And uh, when Valen plays music, I like to just, I just lay out on the floor and let her play all night. And I like to hear Vonda sing. I like to hear Violet sing. It's just a wonderful family. I like to hear Jason talk about anything. Jason's very, very intelligent, very, very humble man. And uh, I listen when he talks. Praise the Lord. It's a wonderful family. And, of course, it helps to have Brother Hackler at the helm. And Brother Hannity helping him guide this family. For if you have not understood it yet, they are truly who's in charge of the Shield family. You're in good hands, folks, for many, many years. I'm going to just act like I'm home tonight. And uh, I, uh, I love the Bible. I, I don't mind telling you that. I've told you on other occasions that several years ago, I, I just felt like the Lord really dealt with my heart and said to try to understand His Bible. For years I read it, loved it, preached exegetically out of the Bible. Exegetical preaching is you take a passage and you illustrate it with other things. You can be eclectic with it. You can use uh, poetry or history or whatever. But I truly wanted to understand the Bible, and so I... I started a little journey of trying to understand these books and uh, spent some time on the Gospel of John, about a year and about a year and a half on Matthew, two and a half years on Luke, and I'm in the 
Gospel of Mark right now. But also, during that journey, I also spent time on the book of Acts and the Minor Prophets and this book that we're going to talk about tonight, the book called Song of Solomon. And uh, I love this book. And I want to give a disclaimer at the start. If I say anything tonight that does not agree with the theology or interpretation of this book that your pastor and the bishop hold, they are correct. And I mean that. I'm just giving you my little pea-brained understanding of this book. But I love it. It's a wonderful book. So I'm just going to give you verse 1. And that's my title and my subject tonight. And I can think of no better church anywhere to preach about the song of songs than right here. Because you folks like music. You even like bluegrass music. You have to really like music to like bluegrass music. I know. it. You love music. And so my subject tonight, and I'm going to just preach out of my heart. Uh, no notes, just extemporaneously. I'm going to talk about this little story called the song of songs the song of songs put your bible down lift your hands invite the presence of god into this service that he would touch us change us don't leave us the way we are lord hallelujah we thank you jesus we thank you jesus anoint your word today lord jesus name jesus name Amen. You may be seated. Thank all the singers, musicians, everybody that's helped this service tonight. <clears throat> I tried to, uh, a number of years ago, started by just learning the books of the Bible and how to spell them and when they were written and who the authors were and then tried to understand the authors. And one of the things that I strive to know uh, today and still do is why a book is in the Bible. When you look at the fact that there's 66 books and Almighty God said, we need these books and these books are going to last through eternity. When I pick up one of those books, especially one that's a little hard to understand, my mind immediately says, now, Lord, why do you want this book in the Bible? Maybe you've never phrased it quite like that. Maybe you're like some of the folks I pastor. They don't really take the time for that. They just say, Hickamashai, pass it on by. Move on to the next one, praise the Lord. But there's a little inquisitiveness in me that when I read it, I want to understand it. Now, you know, this book is like almost a book you can't read in church. I know it's God's Word, but there's certain parts of it that if I started reading it tonight, You'd try to suck it up and be cool, but because it's two lovers talking to each other. And one of the most embarrassing things in the world is to hear two people talk about how much they love each other. It makes you want to go outside and talk on your cell phone, praise the Lord. Now, we know that the author of this book was Solomon, and we know that he was the wisest man in the world. We didn't say that. Historians don't say that. God Almighty said he was the wisest man in the whole world. And we know that he wrote three books. He wrote one book when he was a young man, prime of life, early years. That's the book that we're discussing tonight. 
He wrote another book in his middle years, the book we refer to as Proverbs. And he wrote a third book in his last and last later years called the book of Ecclesiastes. Of the three books he wrote, two of them are about women. He was interested in women. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can I underline the fact that he was interested in women? Two of his books were written to women. The one that I'm referring to tonight and the one called Proverbs. If Proverbs has never really reached out and grabbed you, you need to go back and take a look at it because the first few chapters, the first six or seven chapters, are about a woman called the woman of the street. She is the street walker. She is the alluring, provocative, seductress that they were uh, uh, aware of in their day. And from that point forward, he contrasts that woman of the street with the woman called wisdom. And the rest of the book, including chapter 31, that, that lifts and, 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 and gives as an example this woman, contrasts the difference between a woman of the street and the woman called wisdom and how they will affect your life. He did that in his mid-years of life. In his early years of life, when he only had 80 wives and 60 concubines, he wrote this book, The Song of Songs. So he was still getting warmed up. He only had 140 women that he was taking care of, praise the Lord, financially. We know that according to the Bible, he had a summer palace. We know according to the Bible, I'm just summarizing some of these facts. I'm not going to read all the scriptures. You can go home and find them. They're in there, I promise you. And if you can't find them, Dr. Shield can tell you from memory where they're at. Or can use a concordance. We know he had a summer palace. We know he was rich. We know he was wealthy. And we know he was famous. We know he built the most magnificent building in the history of the world, the temple of God, seven years in the making. 200,000 men worked on it. We know that when he completed that, he started on his own personal residence and built the most fabulous house anyone had ever built up to that time and probably has ever built. And we know that in addition to the temple and his personal residence, we know according to the books of the kings that he had a summer residence. And we know that when he went to this summer residence that he had a chariot that he drove. I'm going to call it the love mobile. The chick mobile. And before you think I'm getting reckless with the Bible, you go to the book and read it. And it will tell you that he had a chariot that had silver pillars that was overlaid with purple and a floor of gold. And these are the Bible's words, not mine. And the Bible says it was paved with love. That's what the Bible says. So I contend that this was his cruiser. This is what he drove through the land looking for babes. Sorry if that sounds irreverent. Looking for beautiful women. And enticing these women to be his wife 
or his concubine. Now, I don't know if he had a, I'm get, I told you I was going to act like I'm at home. I don't know if he had a rating system that he said, okay, this one rates one to ten. She gets to be a wife. This one's a little ugly. She has to be a concubine. I really don't know. <laughs> I know a m- bunch of the wives were also political alliances for in reading your Bible, Solomon never fought one war. Who could he fight? He was married to everybody's daughter in the whole world. No reason to fight. And so we know according to this book that there are three major characters. There is a young, beautiful Shunammite girl. There is a young, backwoods, robust, stalwart shepherd. And there is Solomon. And the story begins by introducing us to a great love relationship in a pure biblical sense between a man and a woman. Far more excellent than Romeo and Juliet. Far more excellent than Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Far more great than Dante and Beatrice or any other great love story in the history of the world. This story stands as a great love story. And the Holy Ghost, remember, the Holy Ghost moved on the heart of Solomon to write this. And then the Holy Ghost said, not only do I want you to write it, but I want it to be included in the 66 books that will last forever because there is a message in here that my church can benefit from a thousand years from now. No matter what technology is involved, no matter what issues are on the table, no matter what the politics are happening, no matter what calamities are happening in our world, there is a message in this book that if they read it quickly, they may not get. But somewhere, if they ever get a hold of the message that is sublimely woven through the Song of Solomon, they can live for God no matter what situation arises no matter what politics come and go no matter what the economy is doing there is a thread in this book that if you ever hook on to it trust me you can live for God under any circumstance so it starts by introducing us to the young girl she's the youngest in her family she's very beautiful but she's the youngest so she gets the bad jobs you know there's a pecking order in families The older kids give up the unsavory jobs as they move up the family chain. And she's at the bottom. And so her job is to keep the sheep. And so she has to gather the sheep and go out. She doesn't get to stay in the house where it's clean and nice. She has to trudge the dusty paths. She has to associate with stinky sheep. You've ever had sheep or ever dealt with them, they are very strong in their aroma. They smell. So she has to go out and do this. It wasn't a job that girls wanted to do, but she's the youngest, so it falls her lot. So she does. She goes to the hillside, and there she starts taking care of the sheep. She finds the only shade anywhere in the neighborhood, and it just happens to be an apple tree. And the apple tree comes into play in this book at the end in a very predominant way. And so as she is sitting under the apple tree, probably upset, probably not happy, out there, dusty, hot, sweaty, dirty, smelling those stinky sheep, worried about them, having to do this job, she looks up and lo and behold, the second character is introduced on the stage and it is a shy handsome 
robust young shepherd. And she's probably shy and bashful at the start, but as all young people finally get around to figuring things out, they learn how to talk and and I got tickled. I won't use any names. Sure wouldn't want to embarrass anybody in this church. But the bishop told me about a young man and lady that can talk for hours about nothing. And as only Vonda can do, Vonda said, how do you know? <laughs> I thought that was such a good comeback because if they're by the... But the bishop was being pure and he knew that his saints would never... They would just talk about nothing. Praise God. This young shepherd... And this young Shunammite girl become acquainted. And suddenly this horrible job isn't as horrible anymore. And when she goes home at night, mom says, how was the first? Oh, it, it's, it's all right, mom. I, I can handle it. I, she doesn't say anything about that. But, but as the days and weeks began to drift by, a friendship is forged. And sooner and sooner they're looking for each other and their conversation becomes more familiar and and what she doesn't know about herding sheep he contributes and suddenly her family is impressed at her ability to be a shepherdess and and they are spending hour after hour lazing under the apple tree for there is nothing more to keep them there are no dazzling lights there are no jerusalem symphonies to go to there are no orchestras to play for them they have nothing but the sun or the stars and the elements of nature and two young hearts that are hungry for life and they sit there and suddenly a bond begins to grow and and love blossoms in its very most tender stages and so before long they are in love but probably don't even realize they're in love we know they're in love because of the actions that the book tells us maybe they weren't yet to the stage where they were vocalizing it they might not have looked deep into each other's eyes and said i love you but anyone that was observing them would have said they're in love isn't it funny how you can tell before sometimes they're even ready to admit it themselves It's so funny to watch people that start falling in love. They'll say, oh, I really don't care about them. Oh, really? Just spent 20 hours with them last week. But you really don't care about them too much. And so that's kind of what was going on here. They began to form this relationship and this this bond. And one day, while they are sitting, taking care of the sheep under the apple tree, he probably saw it first because he was a little older and a little more mature. He looks, and in the distance... There's a plume of dust on the horizon. So uncommon. They don't live in a well-traveled area. And they're wondering what's coming. Who is this that cometh in the chariot? He had 60 outriders, bodyguards, men of war surrounding Solomon's chariot. I'm not sure how it happened, but I'll just fill in the blanks with my imagination. As Solomon's riding through the countryside... And they're watching, mouths open, eyes wide, watching him as his chariot comes by. It's impressive, brother. This is the best, latest model. It's got 22-inch rims on it. It's got short tires. It's got everything that you can get on it. You understand? This is the richest man in the world's ride. So it is not some cheap eBay economy version it is the best and as this chariot passes by the young guy is looking at the wheels and the young guy is looking at the horses and the girl is looking at what is going on and they are speechless as the chariot drifts by 
apparently one of the riders said something to the person inside the chariot and most likely a little curtain was opened just a little and the rider inside saw the young lady under the apple tree and then that fleeting glimpse and then they went on by but that night he didn't forget he dispatches a rider and says go and fetch me that young Shunammite girl and so the rider with royal banner kingly representation goes and seeks out the home of the young girl who was tending sheep under the apple tree and informs her that King Solomon, the occupant of the chariot, the resident of the summer palace, wants to see you. And he gathers her and she leaves without her shepherd knowing. For we read in the story that that night when he comes, peers through the lattice in the window, she is not there. His heart is smitten when he realizes that Solomon has beckoned her. He is choked with fear when he realizes that he could be losing this young love of his to the most dazzling, brilliant, wisest, richest man in the world. And no doubt his mind is ravaged by doubts. What do I have to compare with what he can offer her? What can I offer her but the rudimentary things of life? What kind of dwelling can I offer her compared to Solomon? What can I give her in comparison to what he has to offer? And the Bible says that while she is taken to see Solomon, he makes up his mind I will not give up without a fight. And he runs through the night and the briars and the hard places. And he tears clothing and scratches limbs. And finally gets to the summer palace. And he's looking for where she is. He scales the wall and goes through the danger of the 60 bodyguards. And he's looking for her. In the meantime, she's had her initial foray with Solomon. And she is dazzled beyond words her mind cannot comprehend when she sees the glitter and the glitch and the wealth and the pomp she is blown completely away the 140 women that she sees are sizing her up and down and looking at her and she's been out in the noonday sun and so she feels inadequate and she looks at her dark skin and says I am black but I am comely she looks and she has no jewelry she has no ornament she has nothing but her natural beauty that she was born with and she feels like she doesn't belong and and so she goes to bed that night her mind in a whirl in a spin in chapter number five and as she lays there on her bed she hears a knock on her door and her mind cannot believe what her heart is telling her her heart is saying that's your shepherd knocking on the door but her mind is saying impossible it's too far the distance is too great the danger is too much he can't be here in the middle of the night what's going on here and while she ponders and wonders finally thinking well I've got to know she jumps off the bed rips the door open and she can smell 
his fragrance. She can smell the smell of sheep off of the young man that she is. And she tears through the city looking for him. But he hasn't found her. And in fear of his life, he runs, scales the wall, and heads back, disappointed that he has lost her and doesn't know how to find her. She runs through the streets of the city screaming, My beloved! My beloved! You find him! Would you? And the women are laughing. They look out their doors as she runs down the hall. Their hairs are in curlers. They got noxema on their nose. And they're looking out like, Honey, grow up. She's heartbroken. Tomorrow's the day Solomon has told her, I want to know your answer tomorrow. I want to know if you will join my harem. Will you join my concubines or will you marry me? And she has to give an answer. This is the part that is so incredible. And this is the part that I believe it's why God put it in the Bible. And Solomon, who wrote 1,005 songs, said this song is the song of songs. And God put it in the Bible. So whatever your favorite song is, God says this is the number one bestseller of all time in the annals of heaven. This is the song of songs. Now, I'm going to throw this out there. Thousand women, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He wrote a 1,005 songs. Am I stretching it to say that possibly he wrote a song for every wife? As possibly that was part of his allurement. Oh, darling, I wrote a special song for you. Let me sing it to you. Maybe he had a great voice. He did everything else well. Maybe he could play and sing like his dad. Maybe his father taught him the use of harp and stringed instrument from the time he was just a little lad. Maybe he grew up playing and singing, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. Maybe he knew all the top tunes of his father's era and could sing them and thereby learn to sing. And so I'm saying maybe 1,000 of the 1,005 songs were written as allurements to women to bring them into his harem. But this woman, we do know he wrote one song out of 1,005 that did not achieve its mark. And he was so touched, deeply touched, that he said, I'm going to write a song. And out of all the songs I write, this is the song of songs. The young shepherd's making his way back in the early dawn hours to his home, heartbroken, sure that he's lost the love of his life forever, bitter and angry that he doesn't have any way to compete with this rich dude that's got it all, already got 140 women. Why doesn't he leave my girlfriend alone? Angry. She gets up that morning, tries to decide what to do, looks at all the other women and all their artificial means of beauty. And decides, I don't want that. When she walked into the presence of Solomon, the only thing we know that she had on that was different from her daily desert attire were, for the first time in her life, she had shoes 
on her feet. Solomon in his wisdom, he knew how to put the knife in and twist it. And so when she makes her appearance, Solomon says, how beautiful you are today with shoes on. It's in there. It's in your Bible. Because he wanted her to know that. And you know, didn't that just tell you how long ago it's been since women love shoes? He's the smartest man in the world, folks. What's he comment on? And what he was really saying is, that's not the only pair of shoes you'll ever have. That young man I saw you sitting by under that apple tree yesterday, I noticed he couldn't even afford to buy you a pair of shoes. But how nice you look in your shoes. And you can read it when he makes his final appeal. And it's the moment she has to decide, do I want Solomon? Do I want the palace? Do I want the chariot? Do I want the gold and all it has? Or do I want the simple rustic life of the shepherd? That I have fallen in love with. And her heart is being pulled one way and then the other. She's back and forth. And that's when Solomon made his fatal mistake. He might have got her, but he made one mistake. He starts talking to her. I'm not going to read it to you because I told you if I read it, it's kind of like you can read it when you get home. But he starts telling her how beautiful she is and he begins to describe her figure and, and her belly and her thighs and all of her body parts. And I'm sure in her simplistic mind, the red color is creeping up her suntan neck. And Solomon made one mistake. He said, as a matter of fact, your breath smells like apples. And when he said that, he messed up. Because when he said apples, she forgot about all the dazzling things around her. She forgot about the chariot and what it would feel like for her hair to blow in the wind. She forgot about what those shoes felt like on her feet. And all she could remember were those days and hours of being with her shepherd. All she could remember that the most wonderful moments of her life was when she was sitting and talking to the one that listened to her heart and loved her not for what she could give, but for what she was. And she's, you read it in your Bible. He got one more verse out. But before he got one more verse out, she was on her feet and she was out of the palace and she left the shoes behind and she ran through the wilderness and you can read it in the next chapter her desolate her heartbroken young shepherd was sitting thinking he had lost it all and all of a sudden he looked up and she's running through the fields back to his arms she's running her hair is flowing her garments are flapping she is plain and simple but she is returning to her shepherd and as she joins him she runs jumps in his arms and he can't believe that she would choose him above everything Solomon had to offer she tells him you don't understand honey love is strong as death she runs out of the palace and there's old Solomon he's thinking man that worked the last 140 times I got 80 wives and 60 concubines out of the deal like that. What went wrong? And when he began to inquire, 
the wisest man that ever lived, said, I'm going to write a song. And it's going to be called the Song of Songs. Because in his young mind, he realized, if there is any way that I can ever get this nation to fall in love with their shepherd the way that young lady fell in love with her shepherd, then this nation will be a great nation. If there's any way I can duplicate that, if there's any way that this people will love their shepherd, would you lift your hands and pray for just a moment? I I thought that might make you want to love him a little more, but... I'm finished tonight. I just got a few more moments, but would you lift your hands and and remember that your shepherd is the one that came bounding through 42 generations to find you. Your shepherd is the one. No, he doesn't offer you Hollywood. No, he doesn't offer you fame and fortune. He offers you nothing but a rugged cross. He offers you nothing but the simple lifestyle of Christianity. But if I can ever get it in your heart, if you can ever realize that's why that book was put in the Bible. Do you want to live like Christ wants you to live? Or do you want the cheap thrills of this world? Solomon had enough sense to say, if I could only get this nation to fall in love with their shepherd the way that young lady loved her shepherd. This would be the song of songs. Sister Valen, would you come? The song of songs. He saw people all around him that were cheap. He saw people all around him that loved him just for what he could give them. He saw people all around him that the only reason they were even in his, in, in his presence was because he passed out good things. I dare say that out of 140 women, there wasn't a single woman that loved Solomon for who Solomon was. They loved him for what he gave them. Solomon saw something and thought, oh, if I could get this nation to love their shepherd the way this young lady loves that man. Maybe as he sat there stunned with a hollow feeling in the pit of his stomach, she ran out the door, looked around as servants were snickering behind their hands at the idiocy of this young girl, obviously thinking she's stupid. No doubt, conversation that night in the beauty parlor was how stupid can you be? She would rather go barefoot the rest of her life when she could live in luxury. When she could wear the finest clothes, she chose the homespun garments of a shepherdess. And they wagged their heads and made fun of her and never understood her. But to her, there were some things more important than what you wear and what you hold in your pocket. To her, the thing that really mattered was the love that she had to a shepherd that was forged under an apple tree. And that's what Solomon saw. And Solomon said, this is the song of songs. If I could ever get Israel to love their God with that kind of love, not what the Hittites can give, not what the nations around can give, But if I could ever do it, 
I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to read something that will take just a few minutes. I hope you'll endure. I hope you'll listen carefully. This was written by my friend, Martin Ballestero. Martin Ballestero wrote a letter to intercessory prayer. And the title is Intercessory Prayer, We Miss You. The letter said, this is just a line to let you know how things are since you've gone. It's not the same without you, nor will it ever be. Although our lives seem shallow and empty when you're not here, we've learned to make up for you in other ways. Intercessory prayer, we've learned to live without you. We run the aisles, we leap for joy, we jig to the music, and we sing catchy choruses, and we tap our feet in the rhythm of the drums. We use sticks and banners and black lights and sign teams, and they are wonderful and they do a great job. We've just learned to do many things, and we don't need you anymore. The prayer rooms are mostly silent now. Those that do go there, for the most part, come away dry-eyed. A lot of praying now is chanting, sing-song. That's how we know we're in the groove. We pray memorized phrases that just come automatically. We love what we call our prayer walks. Many of us don't even close our eyes anymore when we pray. We just walk and look. We pray because it's required. No one prays till they break through anymore. We just pray till our 10 minutes are up. Intercessory prayer, I want to tell you that family altars are almost unheard of now. You can't imagine how busy we are, how hectic our schedules are. It's unbelievable. We get up in the morning and we never stop till we go to bed at night. We try to make it to church services and we get some praying in there. But prayer at home is kind of out of the question. That may be another reason you haven't heard much from us. Oh, we still believe in prayer. And, but not many of us are very anxious for you to come back. And you were always the polite type. You never forced yourself on anyone. You only left because you were ignored. The sad truth is you're not really needed anymore intercessory prayer you see most of us have insurance now and it takes away that old desperate feeling we used to have we don't have to pray much just a few minutes till we can get to the emergency room we don't have to ask for our daily bread like we used to we've got good jobs and good benefits and government programs to fall back on if we lose our jobs there's always unemployment and welfare and if we retire there's social security and so we're doing okay. Other things have filled in during your absence. Oh, we miss you, but we're getting by just fine. Actually, we're too busy to entertain you right now. So if you even tried to come right now, I hope you understand. 
We're having revivals now without you. It's not hard at all. Pastor fasts and prays with a few folks in the church. The evangelist preaches mostly to sinners. Most of us try to get in to church before the first song is over. And we justify the fact that the number of new converts is down. You see, there seems to be diminished conviction. Victory doesn't last as long. Not as many miracles. And our young people are backsliding out of our churches. We're not at fault. It's just the times we're living in. Everyone is experiencing this. As your friend, I'm writing to you, knowing how much it must hurt you to have folks say they miss you. And yet in their material and intellectual progress, we've weaned ourselves from the haunting memory of you. What hurts, I know, is that we were children. You personally raised You were always there when we needed you. You taught us about faith. You taught us about miracles. You taught us about a move of God. You taught us about revival. You taught us how to touch God. Thank you. But you see, this is a new day. I would try to go to the next level. And our services are different now. We just don't need you anymore do you know can you believe that when you're even mentioned people get real quiet they feel guilty it's like they have a momentary twinge of guilt when they consider that we've all been a part of your disappearance once in a while somebody gets a little teary-eyed when we talk about the old days and how you came but that feeling usually vanishes along with the pizza after church. No intercessory prayer, you're coming back, really wouldn't work right now. We're too blessed. We're doing too well. We're comfortable. In your day, you served your purpose. But the sentiment of today is we're doing okay without you. We have better clothes, better cars, better homes, bigger and more beautiful churches than ever oh by the way an accessory prayer do you remember folks coming into the church with red rimmed eyes out of the prayer room do you remember how the men's suits had baggy looking knees from kneeling so long do you remember those all night prayer meetings do you remember how deep our worship was Do you remember when sinners couldn't even sit in the pew any longer and would jump up and run to the altar? Do you remember when you could feel unity and love when folks helped one another and bore each other's burdens when the saints didn't watch the clock, when they could hardly wait to enjoy the after-service atmosphere, praying around the altar till the wee hours of the morning? Boy, those were the good old days. Well, it's pretty much all gone now, but you ought to see our new Hammond C3. You ought to see our drum set, our guitars. We use praise singers, too, to help cover up the fact that our congregations don't sing like they used to. We let them do a lot of our worship for us, and our choirs do great on the new songs. And Some of the old folks don't like the new songs as much, but the younger crowd likes them. Many of our music directors across the land 
don't even know the old songs. They don't get played much anymore. You'd be proud of our buildings intercessory prayer. We got carpet on the floor now and we have pews instead of benches and they even have pads on them. Our beams are beautiful and chandeliers are in our churches and our pastor has polish too. He doesn't preach long because we're more concerned now about how long a sermon is than what the content is. Our pastor spices his sermons with cute sayings. But I guess that's progress. You win some and you lose some. Bow your head as I read the last little bit. Speaking of losing some, we're losing a lot of our young people. A lot of our marriages have gone on the rocks. But that's to be expected, I guess. Teenagers seem to be at war with their parents and want to dress more like the kids at school than they do the church. Our youth meetings don't have much prayer, but we sure have great icebreakers, great skits, and a lot of fun games. We've got a lot of medicine nowadays to help our aches and pains. And Man, what more could we ask for? Intercessory prayer, I just want to tell you we miss you, but we really don't need you anymore. I hope you're not offended. I don't mean for you to be. You'll always have a special place in my memory. You were good to me. You were generous to me. You got me through some hard times. And I can't thank you enough. But this generation doesn't know you. And if you came to our church, it would probably scare them. Many of them have never met you and don't know anything about you. Those that did know you have waited so long to talk to you that now they're embarrassed. So while I'm trying to work out my feelings about you and see where you might fit into the plans of the future, maybe you should try your luck somewhere else. Maybe Brazil or Ethiopia or maybe the Philippines. Maybe you would be more welcome in third world countries where they're still hungry and poor and not as blessed as we are. You might even look out and find someone to talk to you in a little storefront on the other side of the tracks. Surely someone somewhere still needs you. We're terribly sorry, intercessory prayer. We miss you. But we really don't need you right now. That's why the Song of Solomon was put in our Bible. So when we reach the place we are today, we would be in love with a shepherd, not dazzled by the blessings of life all around us. I invite you to come. And pray in this altar tonight. I invite you to come and rejoin yourself to your shepherd under your apple tree. If it's been a while, run to him. Run to him through the fields of life with an abandonment, with an exultation, with a joy, 
with a sure feeling of I'm in love with my shepherd. I want to spend time with him. Solomon's beauty does not pull me, does not draw me. I am not impressed with what this world has to offer me. I want to be with my shepherd. Let me fall in love with you.
To me.